All right, we are still making our way through Ephesians, and uh, we're going to be in Ephesians 2. If you want to grab a Bible, you are welcome to do that. Something happened in the news this week that really isn't worth uh, mentioning at all, except that in a kind of strange way it relates to our topic this morning. And there's a, a TV show called Jersey Shore that I would be willing to bet most of you in this room have never even seen. Um, and uh, and I, I've never watched more than a few minutes of the show, but I find it a sort of fascinating uh, perspective into what our culture uh, kind of values. Um, and I, I wouldn't recommend watching it, especially if you, if you see that it is kind of a mirror of our culture, because it's almost frightening. But uh, supposedly it's a reality TV show. Who knows how real reality TV shows really are. But, and it's centered around some very irresponsible 20-somethings who have no accountability and pretty much just do whatever they want. And it caught my attention this week because uh, the company Abercrombie & Fitch, which is a very large clothing company, multi-million dollar company, um, actually came out with an official statement and an offer telling the cast of Jersey Shore that they would give them a very large sum of money to stop wearing their clothes, okay? Which, which I think is, uh, is hilarious and interesting because Abercrombie & Fitch, if you know anything about that company, is less than reputable. I remember in high school, you know, there was uh, a, a lot of hurrah around because they were basically using advertising that was pornographic to advertise their clothing, okay? So uh, Abercrombie very much loves its branding as this company. If you don't know anything about them, they love their branding as this company that's for young, beautiful people. You know, it's the frat house gods who are wealthy and, uh, and are free-spirited. They don't have any restrictions and no accountability, right? That, that's really, that's their brand. That's who they love about themselves. So when you see the cast of Jersey Shore living these kind of foolish uh, and irresponsible lives and wearing Abercrombie, it, it just sort of makes sense. I mean, I, I would have thought before this week that maybe Abercrombie was paying them to wear their clothes. Um, you know, they, the, the cast of this show is kind of reckless and accountable to no one. Um, but, but what's interesting to me is both of these groups, Abercrombie and the cast of Jersey Shore, they work so hard to protect this branding, this image that they have. You know, for the cast of Jersey Shore, it's we do whatever we want, and that's what people love us for. For Abercrombie, it's we're for the people who fit this particular description, right? Their identity to them is super important, so much so that the, I think one of the main characters on the show, his name is Mike, and he calls himself The Situation. I mean, he's branded himself that name. I am The Situation. I know Tom's looking at me like, <laughs> what? Um, so, so anyway, you know, uh, the cast of the show in kind of even wearing Abercrombie, they, they want the world to know that their identity is cool. It's very much that free-spirited individual that fits the Abercrombie brand. And Abercrombie wants to maintain its image as this kind of, kind of posh, uh, uh, social, uh, god-like status, you know. Now, uh, what, it, what, what this interchange reveals to me is this uh, American obsession with image or branding or even identity, right? Um, it's, it's everywhere. People pay millions of dollars for their logo. I think I heard at one point, and maybe I'm making this up, but I think I heard Nike paid somebody $40 million to come up with the swoosh, right? $40 million is what they put into the development of that logo. And 
probably rightly so, because they've probably made billions off of that logo being plastered everywhere, right? We are a culture that is obsessed with external identity. Everything about us finds an expression in some sort of external identity. But this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage of scripture that suggests that we might have it wrong if our external identity is our primary identity. And it probably won't come as any surprise to you as I kind of make that case. But let me read Ephesians 2, 18 through, uh, I'm sorry, 8 through 18. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Therefore, remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in the flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Let me just pray for us this morning. God, we again ask that you would just be with us this morning, that you, your Holy Spirit would enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that you would make known to us the riches of the depths of this scripture, that it, would, that it would touch us, change us, form us, and that we wouldn't leave here this morning, God, the same people that we were when we walked through those doors. We pray your hands of blessing upon this experience this morning, and it's in your name that we ask these things. Amen. Now, that's a lot of scripture. Uh, you know, when you sit and just hear scripture in those kinds of quantities, it can be a little bit overwhelming. So let's kind of pick some of this apart piece by piece. First, I want to take a minute and examine verses 8 through 10. So let me read that one more time. And this is just an incredible verse. I mean, this is one of those verses that I, rem- I think probably like when I was 8 in Awanas, I memorized this verse. You know, it's just one of those verses that jumps out of scripture at us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. All right. Now, there's really not a whole lot of explanation that needs to go along with these verses. Uh, it, It states pretty clearly that our salvation is a gift from God himself. That's, that's pretty much it. We can't point to anything in our own identity or any external factors as the reason for our righteousness before God. We don't come to God with any sort of claim on his grace. We come to him desperate for it. 
It's not because of our hard work or the university we got our degree from. It's not because of our employment status, the company we work for, or the position that we have there. It's not because we wear the right clothes, we go to the right church, or we do the right thing. It is only through Christ. Our salvation, if we have it, comes from God. Exactly as he said in verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. There is one way only that we are reconciled to God, and it's through Jesus, okay? So, I mean, like I said, verses 8 through 10, I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time there. I don't, I don't need to explain that any more deeply than it's, than it's laid out for us right there. Um, but uh, but this is, truth is so important that, that Paul restates it in another way in verse 10. So let me read verse 10 one more time. He says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Again, God accomplishes the work of salvation. It's not us. It's a gift from him. And our response is joy. Our purpose as a result of this accomplishment is to do good works. So God does the work of salvation and then blesses us with the responsibility to do good works as a result. It's what we were created to do, right? Which God prepared in advance for us to do. You know, for a culture that's obsessed with external identity and and image, this is a tough reality. That That our true identity comes from something other than ourself is hard to swallow. It makes it hard to establish a pecking order of righteousness. You know, he, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe you've had a situation like this where you got a new job or you walked into a room or you met somebody or you were in some situation where you could tell that everybody was kind of sizing each other up, trying to figure out who's at the top of this food chain and who's at the bottom. I remember when I first started getting into sales, I read a book on sales, and, and the guy was giving this advice when you walk into a room where you have to do networking, you need to know within the first five minutes who the important person in that room is. And you need to put yourself beside that person. You need to build a relationship with that person so that you've got an in, right? We do that all the time. And, and it might be so subconscious we don't realize it's happening. But we like status. We like to know where we fall on the social food chain, right? We want to be in the right neighborhood. We want our kids to go to the right school. We want to drive the right car. But within the church under Christ, there's none of that. There's no room for that. Because God does the work, not us. And so when we come together under Christ, as the body of Christ, there is no social pecking order. We come before God as equals, with him being the one who gifts us with salvation. So... Although we may have different roles within the church, right? Some lead, some teach, some shepherd, some pray, some have compassion, some are generous, some are hospitable. You know, the list of gifts that God bestows on his people is long and varied. But there's equality within those gifts. They all play a role. That's why Paul talks about the eye can't say to the foot, I don't need you. Forget it. I'm going to go off and do my own thing. It's just not possible. Although the eye to us may seem more significant, they both are a part of the body, right? So when we come before God, although we may play different roles, we are equals because righteousness comes from God himself. It is not a matter of status. It is not our identity 
to be earned. But like I said, it's hard for us sometimes to understand this. Because it, it robs us of our ability to brag and show off and explain why our brand is the best brand. Right? I, as the lead pastor of the church, am what it means to be the Christian. Right? No, that's not the case. That's not what it means. We come before God as equals. And it, and it keeps us, when, when we struggle with this idea, it keeps us from being able to point to an identity within ourselves so we can outdo each other. There's no place for that in the body of Christ. For Christians, the only brand then, the only identity that we have and that matters is our identity in Christ. That's it. That's all there is to it. Philippians 1.6 says, We can be confident that God who began the good work in us is going to carry it on to completion. He started our salvation, and he will finish our salvation. And so he is the only one who should get any credit. He started it. He's going to finish it. And, and we have a wonderful identity as his children now because of what he has done, because of him, not because of us. Paul goes into further detail in the next couple of verses. Look at those with me. In verses 11 and 12, he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. What he's saying here is that before Jesus, the Jews who were God's chosen people had been given an external sign, an external brand of their identity. God came to Abraham and he said, I want you to circumcise the males of the tribe of Israel so that everyone will know that they are set apart, right? I want you to create an us and them reality. You are my chosen people. You have your identity in me. They are apart, right? Those who were circumcised belonged to God and those who didn't, didn't. I'm sorry, those who weren't didn't belong to God. But read verse 13 with me. He says, but now in Christ... You who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Jesus created this new reality where there was no external sign. You may wear a cross or have a fish tattooed on your arm, but that doesn't mean that you're a part of Jesus' family. The sign is an internal one, a, a true acceptance of Christ as your Lord and Savior. So Jesus created this new reality where anyone who looked to his work on the cross received his gift of forgiveness and a new identity as a child of God. And right here, this is why we celebrate communion, guys. And we're going to do that this morning. But this is why right here, to remember that through the blood of Jesus spilt for us, we have the gift of salvation. It was given to us at a high price, the highest price you could possibly imagine but we receive it free. And, and we come in communion to be humbled and reminded that we are God's workmanship, like Paul says here in verse 10, right? We're God's workmanship, and the only thing that we can boast about is how great our God is that he would save us, that he would do that work. And we come in communion looking for forgiveness, looking to be uh, reminded of God's greatness and our humility. Right? Read on with me. 
Because verses 14 through 18 restate this work of Christ. It restates what he did. Let me read it. For he himself is our peace, talking of Jesus, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. What he's specifically referring to is that identity of us and them. That they were circumcised, they had the external identity, and so they were Jews and they were saved, and we weren't. I'm not Jewish, so I don't have that, that right by birth. I'm a part of the Gentiles, right? So we had this, this wall that divided God's chosen people from those who weren't. And what Paul's saying here is Jesus is the peace who has destroyed the barrier and welcomed all to be a part of his family regardless of external identifying factors. By abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him... We both have access to the Father by one spirit. You could even insert the word, we all have access to God. Because there's two people, two types of people he's talking about. Those who were Jews by birth and those who weren't. So we all now, through Christ, have access to God. Again, Jesus put an end, what what, what he's saying here is Jesus put an end to the physical external identity marks that make one group of people God's people and another excluded from his family. Again, in the Old Testament, people followed a set of laws and regulations. Circumcision was a part of that. And now we follow Christ, who brings peace to those who are far away and those who are near. Peace to those who are far and those who are near. I love that phrase. It's beautiful, isn't it? In other words, it doesn't matter what your identity was before you came to Jesus. He welcomes sinners and alcoholics, cheats and successful people. It doesn't matter. He welcomes beautiful and not beautiful. He welcomes black and white. He welcomes whatever you may be. You are welcome before Christ. Verse 18, for through him, we both, we all, have access to the Father by one spirit. What Jesus came to do was to reveal God to us, to show us God's heart for humankind. He said it himself in verse, I'm sorry, in John 14:8, "Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father." If you know Christ, then you know God, our heavenly Father. And it was through his work of salvation on the cross that we have access to God. Again, verse 18, through him We all have access to the Father by one spirit. I want to state this one more time in very theological terms. Um, uh, I I, kind of like theology, actually. I I like reading. I'm I'm reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology right now, which is actually just nerdy and stupid. Um, I mean, the book is great. Don't get me wrong. But to sit down and read through it and not use it as like a reference material is just nerdy and weird. But but I kind of dig it. So I want to state this in very theological terms, and I'm going to make it quick so that I don't bore you if theology theology lessons aren't your thing, okay? Um, But God has a progressive plan for your life, and and theologians use three words to kind of describe this progressive plan, okay? So put your learning thinking caps on because this is about to get intense, okay? 
The, the three words are sanctification, and I'm sorry that my handwriting is awful, justification, and then finally, glorification. And they sort of look intimidating. There's a lot of letters in those words. Um, they sort of look intimidating, but let me explain them. Glorification first is what happens at the end of our redemption when Christ returns and he raises the dead. And if we're fortunate enough to actually still be alive at that moment, we will be given new resurrected bodies, even though we might not have passed away. We are, our, our souls and our bodies are going to be united again in perfect resurrection bodies like his own. Jesus himself was resurrected. He was given a new body after death, and we can anticipate that. And for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, it is going to be a wonderful day, the most glorious day ever. Sometimes Leanne and I have debates about this. I am just thrilled to die and go to heaven. I really, really am. And she is a little more hesitant. Uh, and I don't blame her. You know, life is all that we know. But I, I just, I can't even tell you. I get, I get goosebumps thinking about it. It is just going to be awesome. Um, I'm just going to stop there because I can't even, I can't put it into words. But for those of us who have our faith in Christ, it is going to be a wonderful day, our day of glorification, when we will be like Christ. We will know no more pain and suffering, fear and heartache. They'll be gone. Now, where, where uh, glorification comes at the end. So where we sometimes get confused is with sanctification and justification, okay? So let me explain these a little bit more. Justification is an instantaneous act. It is the actual moment when God regards our sins as forgiven and declares us righteous in his eyes. When you come and you bow down before Christ for the very first time, and you surrender your life to him, that is the moment of justification. You are no longer seen as apart from God. You are welcomed to his family. You become his child, and he sees you as righteous through Christ. Now, sanctification is the progressive work of us and God together through the Holy Spirit working towards our holiness, eliminating sin from our lives, and actually coming to live like Jesus. And it's a process, you know, progress is the word. And, and this is important because the order in which you put these things has a significant impact on the way that you live your life. It is hugely important. And, and this is probably one of those subconscious things, but I want to point it out to us this morning. If you put them in the order, let me just write these up here. And I'm not going to write out the words because we'll be here all day. If you put them in the order sanctification, justification, glorification, you have very different results than if you put them in the order justification, sanctification, glorification. Let me explain. One of these orders leads to fear and hypocrisy delusion, deceit, and disappointment. But the other leads to freedom, progress, and ultimately life, the kind of life that Jesus talked about. In John 10, 10, I have come that you may have life to its full, the way that it was meant to be had. I think I hear my son screaming. 
All right, sorry to interrupt. Um, you know, if, if you think that it's this order right here, you're in for a heap of trouble. You're in for a lot of heartache in this life. You're going to end up always trying to earn your justification. You're going to end up constantly being reminded of your sinfulness and your brokenness. You're going to end up thinking that God is this angry, miserly man who sits in heaven waiting to punish you for your bad deeds. You're going to live a life of disappointment because you're never going to get there. You're always going to be one Sunday short of it. You're always going to be one curse word too far past what God has grace to forgive. You're always going to be one broken relationship away from his grace. You're never, ever going to be perfect enough to be sanctified before you are justified. But if justification comes first, if this is how you understand your relationship with God, then you know that you're already forgiven. God already regards your sin once you have surrendered your life to Christ. God already regards your sin as abolished because of the work of Jesus. And you're free then. You're free to move beyond justification into sanctification. You're free to grow and pursue him with all of your heart, to learn to live like Jesus with the understanding that even your future failures, even the failures that you will have later today, tomorrow, next week, 10 years from now, they're already forgiven through Christ. Like Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. This justification is from Christ. It's a gift of God, not by works. Sanctification comes afterward so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're justified first by God as a gift. Then we're called by God into the process of sanctification. And as a result, at the end of time, we will be with God, glorified in our resurrection bodies. Right? It's super important. I know it's theological and maybe slightly boring, but it's super important. And thanks be to God for his perfect plan of salvation, that he ordered it with a gracious gift of justification, followed by a beautiful process of sanctification and a wonderful fulfillment and glorification. It's perfect, isn't it?